Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium Podcast and another Author's Shelf episode. I am very excited. I This is probably wrong, but I feel like it's been a while since I've done one of these. Anyway, I am Craig, your host, and with me today, Philip Chase. Philip, how are you? I'm doing great, Craig, and I want to thank you for inviting me here to have this discussion on one of my very favorite stories of all time, my favorite thing to teach uh, I'm just uh, thrilled to be able to talk about Beowulf with anybody who will listen. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, Philip. You are not only an author. I mean, that's why you're on the author shelf uh, series, but you're also a medievalist, a literature professor, a you know, PhD yeah. of this and that, and uh, all around smart and learned man, right? <laughs> Did I get your bio? Was that I was trying to read it verbatim. Was that correct? Uh, yeah, especially that last part. That was right on right from the bio, <laughs> official bio. No, yeah, I, I am a medievalist. That's my, my sort of day job. I'm a, a professor of English, and I, I do love to teach this uh, particular story. Uh, I mostly teach it in translation, uh, mm. but I am very enthusiastic uh, to talk about it in Old English as well. Um, but oh. uh, we're mostly... We're doing Let's the translation do mostly today, but we can have a few snippets maybe of some old English here and there, I hope. I, yeah, I think that would be great. Well, we'll get to Beowulf in just a moment. I do want to remind everybody to go to thelegendarium.com where you can check out past episodes uh, grouped by author or by series like this author shelf series. Uh, you can also find a calendar with upcoming episodes if you want to follow along and be prepared for when future episodes come out. And lastly, you'll find links to Discord and Patreon for those of you who want to join the conversation and or support the show. If you like what we do here, it is much, much appreciated, uh, truly. Now then, Beowulf. Beowulf, what a choice. What a choice. And, you know, at least you have the excuse of being a PhD and a, the medievalist by trade, as you say. When we brought brought uh, Brent Weeks on, I said, Brent, what do you want to do? And he says, uh, he says, I want to do the Odyssey. And I'm like, of course you do, Brent. And, uh, you know, <laughs> he doesn't have that excuse. You, you say this is your favorite story, which I find a very interesting thing to say. Is it your favorite story as uh, as something to teach, as something to study, as a portal and a gateway into uh, medieval England and Northern Europe and all that? Or is it, could you strip all of that away and take the story of Beowulf and Grendel and the dragon and say, this is my favorite story? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And uh, I guess I'll just cheat and say both. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, it's hard for me to separate all of the uh, the things like the old English. So I love mm. language. I love language, and I love old languages. Uh, I, we can blame our our, our mutual uh, idol J.R.R. Tolkien for that. Uh, when I read the he ruined Lord my Rings. life. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I wear tweed jackets because of J.R.R. Tolkien. I mean, he's he's my hero. Uh, he's the person who, when I was uh, 12 or so when I read Lord of the Rings that just baptized my imagination hmm. and gave me a sense of this longing for the past. And that is something that he, uh, I believe, took from his study of Old English literature. And that's a huge theme. It's enormous in uh, Tolkien's own writing, of course, uh, where he 
portrays ancient civilizations uh, and it gives you this sense of these deep sense of, of history and layers and mythology, mm. uh, arguably the most complete feeling uh, world building that's ever been achieved. Uh, and that is something that he took this sense of this, this love for the past, this sense of beauty and sorrow all wrapped up together. And that is something that really uh, is a huge, you could call it even, I think, an uber theme in Old English poetry. And it is something that pervades Beowulf. So this was one of the things that attracted me uh, as a young person, not knowing the word catharsis even, which I felt at the end of Lord of the Rings and wanting more of that and mm. realizing that a lot of this came from this uh what in Old English is called dust, dust showing, showing, which is this contemplation of the past. Or in the Latin tradition, there are ubisunt poems and that sort of thing. Where are they? Where are the ones who came before? Uh, so that's a, that's a big, big theme in Tolkien's work in Old English poetry. And that is one of the things that attracted me for sure. Uh, and just the, the idea that here is a poem in a language that is ancestral to modern English but has all these words that we no longer use or has words that are have changed their meaning hmm. uh, so that we don't recognize them in their context. Or, And I just found that incredibly attractive. And obviously Tolkien's approach to writing is very linguistic as well. Uh, as right. you know, you know he, he invented languages and then he had to write stories for, for to fill that world in a way. That's uh, sort of the order he went in. And that's no accident either with his attachment to uh, old English poetry. Um, it's, it's a recreation of a sort in many ways when a scholar engages with Old English poetry. Uh, sometimes the manuscript is, is uh, damaged and they have to conjecture about what the words were. So there's a lot of recreation involved mm. in, in uh, any, any time we're studying Old English poetry. Uh, so all of that really, and just uh, somehow I've just, that's, uh, I found it so compelling and, and that put me on this life path of uh, simultaneously being a lover of medieval literature, but also fantasy. Yeah. You know, the way you described that actually to keep Tolkien in the conversation for a bit longer, he wrote yeah. characters who would, uh, they, they would come upon the sea and they would hear the music of the sea um, and were forever changed and forever drawn to the sea right this this happens with the elves all the time yeah. uh, once you hear the music of the ainur on the shores of the ocean you you can never be settled again unless you can hear it right uh, and so the way you talk about that is uh, you get your taste of beowulf and old english and all this and it just grabs you and never lets you go yeah. um i know that that uh, that could have very easily been the case for me uh on a professional level uh, mm. it certainly has been that way on a personal level i mean i i read beowulf when i was i would have been 22 i think i was in college okay um and uh, so i'd loved tolkien for a while but hadn't gotten around to beowulf but kind of similar to what you were talking about where this it just these things send you in directions for your whole life where i chose uh a hybrid major uh, that would allow me to study old English and literature and take these courses in, uh, well, essentially old English, uh, where I went to school was two semesters of let's try to translate Beowulf so that you can get to know <laughs> this language, <laughs> yeah. you know, 
Um, it's a common this, approach. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating historical object. Um, and I, there are so many directions. I can't believe we're going to try to do this all in one uh, conversation. <laughs> There's so many directions we could go, but maybe we should refresh anybody who isn't um, already familiar with the story or it's been a long time or something, just the, the quick bones. Um, you've got uh, King Hrothgar uh, who rules in uh, in Denmark in this over, over this clan and their village keeps getting terrorized by the monster Grendel. Beowulf shows up and single-handedly and unarmed defeats the demon that has bedeviled this entire community for years and years and caused death and destruction every night for who, who knows how long. And he comes and defeats it, tears the thing's arm off, <laughs> hangs it as a trophy. The, and the, the monster slinks off into the swamp to die. Uh, then he has to do battle with Grendel's mother, the, the swamp hag. And then uh, he becomes king in his own right after Hrothgar and his son die. Uh, and he ends his life by doing battle with a dragon that now is coming to terrorize the countryside. Um, dies in glorious battle. They honor him and the poem ends, right? This is, it, did I miss any uh, super broad strokes? <laughs> How we're doing the, here? Those are the broad strokes. Those are the main things. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, there's this, Sometimes people conceive of it as a three-part thing with right. Uh, That's Grendel, how I was taught it. Grendel's mother, and then the dragon, which is fifty years later, as you mm. said, from his youth. Fifty is often just sort of a like it's it's just a number, you know. It's a, a lot of years. You just think, okay, yeah. lots of years. Not uh, so. Are you saying it it doesn't literally mean fifty in uh, old English necessarily? It's formulaic. It's yeah. formulaic. Like a lot of like things go in threes, and you know mm. all these formulaic things but yeah so yeah 50 years have gone by now he's ruling the geats his his tribe up in sweden after his adventures and his youth bat down in denmark and uh all kinds of so that's the, the you, you perfectly described the bones of the main narrative but right, the main right reads his poem knows what are all these side narratives what are all these other uh stories that keep creeping in here and there and everywhere hmm. Uh, stories of uh, past ancestors who have lost, who have encountered life's fleetingness and, and who have been put in situations of uh, terrible conflict uh, where their loyalties are tested. Uh, you have situations that are related again and again that reinforce the theme of life's fleetingness the theme of heroism, including courage and loyalty, also seeking glory and vengeance. Uh, these keep getting reinforced by all these side stories that the, that the bard or whatever would, would uh, keep bringing in. And so there's a, there's a really thematic importance, I think, to all those side stories in there. Yeah. this It's interesting to talk about the bard or whoever, right? Because that's one of the great mysteries is where did this story come from and uh, why do we have it in the form we do now? As I recall, um, it, the earliest surviving manuscripts that we have were uh, copied down by monks, uh, Christian Correct. monks in the Most ninth likely. century. Um, yeah. That That's roughly, there? There's actually a lot of debate about that over the years. I think the manuscript we can fairly date to about the year 1000. 
Oh, okay. And then the the I favor the interpretation based on linguistic evidence that the poem was originally composed by a literate Christian person, probably a monk, uh, in the eighth century. Uh, so in the seven hmm. hundred. Uh, possibly even early 700s. So not too long after the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons to Christianity, which began in, well, 597 uh, right. is when Augustine arrived, who had been sent by Pope Gregory. So uh, yeah, it, we think it was written down, copied many, many times between the 8th century and the manuscript that we now have. We only have that one manuscript though. So it's amazing. Yeah. It's a, the story of that manuscript is, is really something yeah. and people should check that out, but I think we'll brush past that for now. But one of the reasons for me that that origin story of the manuscript is important and interesting is because it raises the possibility that this is, uh, in, in one way, it's the best source that we have on, uh, kind of the, the pre medieval, English or, or Northern, I should say, uh, peoples, uh, the, how they talked, how they lived, their conception of themselves. But at the same time, because it's so thoroughly Christianized, it makes me think, oh, well, this is maybe seen best as a bridge between the old world and the kind of Christianized, uh, quote unquote, modern Europe. Uh, is that fair? Oh, I think you're you're on the right track with with that kind of thinking. I mean, this is uh, and a lot of what I'm about to say comes from ultimately Tolkien had this wonderful essay that he wrote called Beowulf, the Monsters and the Critics, which you're probably familiar with. Hmm. Actually, it was originally uh, a speech he gave. And now we read it as an essay. Right. Um, but it was a, a really important moment in how people regard this poem. Because previous to that time, a lot of times it was seen as kind of a rough and not very, um, not very civilized effort uh, at storytelling. <laughs> that uh, it was interesting for maybe the historical tidbits, maybe uh, that sort of thing that can confirm some archaeology. And Tolkien said, "No, this is literature. It is worth engaging in it, with it as literature." And he gave his take on it, which is something to the effect that you have a Christian poet who is looking back on the past of his pagan ancestors with a deep sense of honor and admiration and maybe even some sorrow as well, um, uh, uh, tinged with sorrow because these people, as noble as they were, uh, lacked the hope for salvation that he himself had. Uh, and so that is something that I think, uh, the way I read the poem, which is definitely influenced by, by Tolkien's uh, take, that is something that uh, I, I feel that this this poet was taking much older material hmm. because we do have analogs to the Grendel and Grendel's mother episode right. in Old Norse and, and the sagas. They're very similar stories. So it, we, it, we, we're pretty sure it's a very old story. And this, this Christian poet took that story, added the dragon part and made it this incredibly moving meditation or, as Tolkien said, an elegy about the, the past. Um, it's an interesting word that you use and I, it raises a sort of chicken and egg question for me uh, because you, you're saying based on the monsters and the critics, this is how Tolkien viewed how that uh, hypothetical monk probably viewed what he was doing. And of course, yeah. this is how Tolkien views all of <laughs> old English literature and Beowulf itself and, and all of these things. 
where elegiac would be a great word for it. He's looking back with, um, uh, <laughs> one might say somewhat gauzy eyes um, and, and and seeing things in pre-Christian uh, Northern culture that he does lament the loss of uh, to some extent. You are precisely right. And I feel that this is something that Tom Shippey has pointed out. Mm. Um, Tom Shippey, the scholar who's actually come up with his own. I have the, uh, the Seamus Haney translation with me, but I also have uh, the uh, Tom Shippey and uh, Leonard Nydorf translation that just came out. I'm very excited. Oh, I need about to get it. that. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. Um, and uh, really, really, really uh, some fascinating commentary. He has an essay on Tolkien and Beowulf in here as well. Of very course. Much Cause it's Tom Shippey. Of course. Yeah. It's Tom Shippey. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, he, um, made the point about uh, Tolkien as well um, in terms of Tolkien being in deep sympathy with the person he believed the, the Beowulf poet to be, um, mm. that they had a similar position in regard to the past, a sense of admiration, uh, but also some sorrow. Uh, and not only because of the fact that these lives are gone and we hear echoes of them in the present, but from Tolkien's perspective, being a devout Roman Catholic, um, you know, he would have seen there a, 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 perhaps an element of tragedy in the fact that these noble people did not have the same hope for salvation that that uh, he had. So, yeah. Right. It's let, let me ask you then to dig into uh, this ancient culture that we get a glimpse into and ask you. What are, when we talk about things like bravery and courage, leadership, um, mm. even, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Mournfulness <laughs> that they have. Mm. Um, what are some of the things that people reading Beowulf should be on the lookout for that are either um, echoes of the way we still think today or a type of thinking about the world that is lost, that is going to be foreign alien to us. Yeah, I would say one of the great statements of the, that a lot of people have, have uh, cited as a perfect uh, summation of the pagan heroic code is Beowulf's response to Hrothgar's grief when Grendel's mother avenges Grendel by invading mm. the, uh, Herot once more and uh, taking out her revenge by killing Ash Hera, who is uh, one of Hrothgar's favorite uh, advisors and friends. Uh, and they later on find Ash Hera's head by uh, the mirror where Grendel and his mother are uh, did their hanging out. <laughs> so uh, Beowulf comes to, um, you know, he's waking up in the morning and he's like, how's everything, you know? And Hrothgar says, oh no, my friend, uh, there's Grendel's mother. We, we didn't tell you about that, but uh, <laughs> he, he has a mother and uh, she's come and, and uh, made a mess of things here. And uh, unfortunately she took my best friend and he's mourning. And um, so Beowulf responds uh, with a, uh, a few lines that many people take as a perfect summation. I'm trying to find the lines right now. Uh, it only counts if you read it in old English and we can't actually understand it. So 
Yes. Well, we'll do both. We'll, we will um, absolutely uh, do both where we'll have the, uh, oh, I think I found the page. Here we are. Um, Oh wait, no, this is the wrong page. Uh, this you you probably have the same problem I do uh, with yeah. the Lord of the Rings, where I I know where on the page to look. It's just like wait, which page was it? <laughs> well, I'm not accustomed to this translation. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> so, but now I have the page. Uh, so these are the words that Beowulf speaks to Hrothgar, uh, and uh, I'll read it in Old English first, and then I will read. Uh, I'll read Chippy's translation since I have it right here. You don't want to see me fishing through <laughs> the Haney one uh, all over again. So here we are in Old English. These are, by the way, starting at line 1384. Nosorga <laughs> That be Drichtguman unliefendam after Celest. So I'll trans using Chippy's translation. Do not grieve, wise man. It is better for everyone to avenge his friend than to mourn over much. Every one of us will have to endure an end to life, an end of life in the world. But he who may gain himself glory before he dies, that is the best in the end for the dead warrior. And that's that's a sort of you get the courage, you get the loyalty, you get mm. the vengeance, uh, all of it, and most of all the glory uh, in that response to death, which is in many ways uh, what the story of Beowulf is: is how did these people respond to mortality? So Beowulf, using that line as our. Um... Uh, as our ne plus ultra of you know this concept of uh, northern what courage or glory as you say does yeah. set it at odds against uh, the sort of new testament christianity that uh, yeah. that's also being uh, shown to be ascendant during this story right uh, because there's not a lot of turning the other cheek here there's no. not a lot of forgiveness <laughs> there's none of that it's uh it's a. It's not love thine enemy. It's murder thine enemy, uh, especially yeah. if they murdered one of yours first, right? Yep. Um, and the, obviously, there are problems <laughs> with this. Uh, we look at that through modern eyes and say, "Well, eh, that doesn't sound right. That's going to just perpetuate an endless cycle of death and violence and destruction," uh, which it did. Yep, uh, which it pretty much did, and you get that in all these side stories, and eventually even in the demise of Beowulf's people who were at odds with, for example, the Swedes, uh, mm. who ultimately did um, seem to have absorbed the Geats uh, right around the time that the poem is set. Uh, so yeah, it is, it is fascinating that I, I, I feel, and, and I'm not meaning to, to say that this Christian poet is in any way, shape or form condemning these people of the past, I believe that he's looking at them with a deep sense of admiration, uh, with a deep sense of uh, awe at the way they faced up to what they believed was a, a world with only darkness as, as, a, as a final promise. Uh, and so I think that uh, any, anything like condemnation is much too strong a word. And, and yet I think there might have been some sense of uh, sorrow 
Well, yeah, yeah that's, that's yeah. that's that emotion that you were mentioning earlier. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, just just like Tolkien looking back and going, oh, it's too bad you weren't saved, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's shift gears. <clears throat> and we, we've kind of talked about the heroic side of this. Let's talk about the monstrous side of this with Grendel mm. and his mother, uh, who, by the way, I, I don't know if people know this. You can, You have to read the text very closely to realize that Grendel's mother looks nothing like Angelina Jolie. Uh, it's important to remember you just uh you know make, make sure you you're zeroed in on the text there uh <laughs> I, it's true i do want to say i i think a question for later is why has there been no good adaptation of this but we'll get there in a second Very what good. do you make of grendel uh, what what is he who is he is this um is he meant to be uh, an actual representation of something that you might have found the the kind of misshapen man in the woods who was outcast from his tribe or whatever, or is this purely symbolic representation being you know a descendant of Cain and all of that? Uh, what what is Grendel? Excellent question. So in the analogs, it's clear that Grendel is some kind of a troll, you know, ogreish creature uh, that uh, wreaks havoc with some local population that a hero comes to save. And that hero dispatches that ogre by usually ripping off his arm. And then uh, the creature slinks off, as you said. And then he encounters, uh, usually in something like a cave behind a waterfall, the creature's mother, who gives the hero a harder time than the initial uh, monster did. So, But in the hands of this Christian poet, I think you're at, your question is absolutely uh, correct in the sense that I believe the Christian poet took this and and not that we leave Grendel behind as a flesh and blood creature. He still is a monster, but he takes on the tone of something greater. And I think it's clear that the poet deliberately juxtaposes Grendel to this, like, for example, the song of creation, which they are singing in Herot when they are celebrating Hrothgar's establishment of order and civilization. Very fragile in that very violent uh, world, but nevertheless, it's this uh, celebration. Uh, and it's the song that uh, of creation. Uh, no accident, because we are celebrating an act of creation here in the establishment of Herot, and it protects people, it protects society. Grendel is clearly an outsider. He's out in the darkness. He's out in the chaos. He's out in the fens and the moors and that sort of thing. And as an embodiment of chaos and darkness, he is simply opposed to light and civilization. And so he takes on, I think, a very symbolic resonance in the hands of this Christian poet. Uh, he is the other. He is the monstrous. Uh, the, I, I think the poet is very clear in its morality. There, there is good and evil, right? Um, and the good is that which protects civilization. The evil is that which threatens it. And, and Grendel really does embody uh, all these, this, these forces of darkness and chaos. Appropriately, from the Christian poet's perspective, he is a descendant, of, a descendant of Cain, the original murderer, who is literally an outlaw outside of the law, outside of the pale of civilization. Uh, and so a threat to what holds us all together. Uh, so that makes perfect sense from this Christian poet's perspective. A lot of modern readers are like, what? How can he be? <laughs> You're mixing up biblical with uh, folklore and you know legend and that sort of thing. 
But from that poet's perspective, I think it made perfect sense. Well, hey, anybody who goes on Spotify and enjoys a good mashup should appreciate something like this. So I think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, I I've always viewed uh, Grendel and monsters like Grendel as um, you kind of hinted at it earlier. It's nature versus civilization or humanity, we might call it in a way. It's um, there, there's a constant war both within every single person and within communities and nations as a whole, a, a war between uh, that which is natural and that which is uh, higher, more noble, whatever uh, word or spin you want to put on it. Um, and and it is it is interesting to see where this poet pegged uh, kind of humanity's um, uh, tendency toward nature yeah. where uh, gosh, this, I, I should have thought about this point before I started saying it, but, but my, my, I guess my point is just, we have the village, we have the town that's trying to be protected and it represents civilization. Yeah. And of course we have the forces of nature uh, coming in and trying to take it over. But if only they, could have seen maybe with this poet's eyes, he would say, or, or uh, Tolkien would say with, with my eyes, they don't understand just how natural they still are with this thirst for vengeance and glory. And um, they, they don't understand how the higher way of turning the other cheek and all those new Testament virtues. Um, I, I, I find Grendel fascinating. I've always liked him more than his mother. It, it, just in terms oh. of what I like to read, I think I'm wow. usually backwards. People like his mother more, but I, I hmm. really like Grendel. Yeah, well, they're both fascinating. And um, it, it is true that Beowulf certainly has a harder time with Grendel's mother. Um, and maybe you could say, well, he's in her territory when they have their fight or whatever it may be. Um, but, uh, there, there can be no doubt that she just about gets him. It's, it's his, uh, his yeah. chainmail that saves him really. Um, and they make a big deal of, of, uh, chainmail naturally because it was very intense so work to create something so, so expensive. So, yeah, I mean, it, and it really probably saved uh, a few lives. So, yeah, no doubt. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, I think an almost biblical moment as well when Beowulf is in the mirror uh and she he's been snatched by grendel's mother and he is just about he he tries to use unfair's sword which fails him and ultimately gets this sort of glimpse of this giant sword which he does successfully use to cut off grendel's mother's head and then also grendel's head because he went there to die and, right. and the hilt the sword actually melts with the blood of these monstrous creatures but he brings the hilt back and they notice that on the hilt are these runes inscribing the story of the flood, um, mm, a biblical right. story, right? Uh, when all the giants were slain and all of that. So you see the poet uh, bringing things. So the sword was in a, in a sense, maybe made for slaying giants perhaps or something like that. Um, but fascinating it, it, how the poet mingles again, yeah. the biblical tradition, though importantly, only the Hebrew scriptures. The poet never brings up the gospels um, because he attributes to people like Hrothgar and Beowulf, a kind of what should be called an instinctive monotheism, uh, or a kind of what I've called in the past a virtuous monotheism, not Christianity, because clearly they are pagans. And it probably would have been in the eighth century 
not quite a good thing to mention Odin and Thor and all of those folks <laughs> in, in a poem of this sort. So they are repressed uh, and the, the heroes are alluded to as uh, Hrothgar. The Danes are at one point it says that they did go back to their pagan shrines and stuff like that, um, their demon worship or what have you. But he never, and poet never mentions Odin or Thor or Freya or any of them. Uh, so this sort of instinctive monotheism makes them seem more virtuous to, in the eyes of the Christian poet, although mm. they are still pagan. So, yeah. And you wonder if he was, do you suppose this poet had any audience in mind? Uh, as in, I need to make this more palatable to the court uh, that's going to be hearing this. And so I can't, I, there, there will be no Odin here, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I strongly suspect that uh, if the poet had mentioned Odin and Thor, we would not have this poem today. Uh, it would not have survived. It wouldn't, probably would not have been copied down by monks <laughs> because literacy was in the hands, for the most part, of the church during the church, that time. Yeah. Um, so it's unlike Iceland, where centuries later, in about the year 1000, they were converted to Christianity, but they continued to tell the old stories, which is why most of what we know about Germanic mythology comes from Icelandic sources. The Eddas. Uh, the, the prose Edda and, and that sort of thing, um, where Tolkien got a lot of dwarf names and that sort of thing. Oh, so. man, it's I, I, I've said it. Uh, let's see. Hang on. Uh, let's see. Carry the two. I've said it 3000 times on this podcast, and I'll say it again. If you like. Tolkien stuff, you must read the classic Tom Shippey stuff. So go back, read Author of the Century, read Road to Middle Earth, uh, okay, and you'll yes. learn. It, if if that doesn't ignite your imagination and make you want to go pick up a copy of the Prosetta or Beowulf or whatever, then uh, I have, I, 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 there's no possibility of human understanding between you and me. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, everybody. All right, let's <laughs> Let's talk dragons, okay? Mm. Because as you said, uh, the the first two of our three acts, so to speak, are very familiar in northern literature. Uh, obviously, dragons have their place as well, um, but a, a different one, right? And as you say, it's kind of, it kind of feels like this third act is tacked on for well reasons. Maybe we should talk about. Uh, Similar to the Grendel question, in your mind, what does the dragon represent and why is the dragon here in this story? Yeah, so once again, I think that the Christian poet attaches some symbolic resonance to the dragon, but that also that it is a flesh and blood creature, that it is a, a monster that uh, Beowulf is called to um, deal with uh, because of his place as a king, he must respond to the destruction of his hall, of, uh, of his people, uh, and which is uh, obviously brought about by an incident that highly resembles something that happens in The Hobbit. Uh, <laughs> when a thief comes in, steals a cup from the dragon's hoard and, and angers the dragon, which comes out at night and attacks uh, the, uh, the countryside. Uh, so again- Burninating, we, we might say. Uh, Burninating exactly. the countryside. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Uh, so yeah, the dragon to me, I mean, dragons are such wonderful mythological creatures and they have so, uh, there's just layers and layers to them. I, I of course think that there's the classic Western interpretation of dragons as being, uh, connected to greed. Um, so example, for example, you have the dragon Fafnir in, in Norse tradition, 
the Volsung Saga, which is alluded to in Beowulf as they're mm. celebrating in Beowulf's initial victory over Grendel. The bard tells a story of, uh, he's called Sigmund um, in this version, uh, who uh, goes around with his nephew uh, Simpiotli and has all kinds of escapades, is a great hero. Ultimately in Beowulf, it's said that Sigmund is a dragon slayer. In the Volsunga Saga, it's actually Sigmund's son, Sigurd, who is a dragon slayer. But nevertheless, there's some kind of uh, connection with the dragon slayer um, and a descendant of uh, Vols. Uh, so uh, the, um, the dragon Fafnir talks, it speaks, it uh, has dialogue with Sigurd in, in the saga. Um, it was in fact, at one time, a humanoid, uh, a dwarf that mm. uh, sat down on the gold and, and became a dragon. And there are even some people who think that maybe the, the last survivor who tucks away this treasure after his people are all gone and has this beautiful lament about being the last survivor and, and uh, putting this useless gold in the earth. There's no one to share it with any longer um, and has this uh, wonderful little Ubi Soon to moment. Uh, uh, he, uh, he goes away, he dies. Or does he? Does he become the dragon? Um, that's right. one interpretation that some people have put forward. Um, but uh, regardless, in terms of the symbolism of the dragon, uh, there's greed, but there's also, I think, more poignantly and more fitting with the early interpretation of Grendel and his mother as being forces of chaos and darkness. I, I feel that the dragon is a representation, again, of mortality. Um, and certainly the outcome of the fight would indicate that the dragon performs that function, that even great heroes like Beowulf, their lives come to an end. Um, and they're even all with all the striving and all of the glory that he gained during his heroic lifetime, his end is the same as everyone else's. Um, and even as wonderful as that Barrow is, and as amazing as, as, even though people for many years will go by on the sea and look up at that nest and say, that's Beowulf's barrow and his song will live on for quite some time. And as much as they give him this tribute, all that treasure, and they bury it in the mound with Beowulf, all the treasure that he had gained for his people, they just bury it there. Hmm. There's this sense, I think, of, again, of futility. Uh, of ultimate futility in all of that. As much as, again, not condemnation, but the poet is looking at all this, with, in the way I read it at least, with a sense of sorrow, with how the past is gone, that even a life as glorious as Beowulf's even ends in, in the funeral mound, uh, the same way we had a funeral in the beginning of the poem. Um, so It's, I, I love the way that you talked about that because it reminds me of if you were to ask your typical lay person like myself <laughs> to, you know, what, what's something that defines Northern heroism as we read in these ancient texts, people would probably be able to cite something like uh, Ragnarok or the, this idea of there will be a final battle. You know, a lot of religions and worldviews have this idea of the end of the world, this final yeah. battle, this something that's going world. to happen. Yeah. And and in the Northern tradition, the good guys are destined to lose. Yep. They're, they're going to lose the final battle. And the whole concept of Northern heroism then is, so what are you going to do about it? Are you going to give up and fall into despondency and cynicism and... Uh, 
what what have you or are you going to fight are you going to try to be yes. glorious and heroic and uh honorable and all of these things are you going to continue show your courage in the face yeah. of what galadriel calls the long defeat um and that but so there there's that concept of a culture that's facing ultimate defeat one day but then as individuals that translates into you're going to die you, no matter how much glory wealth and honor you uh, you accrue during this life you're going to die what are you going to do about it and i think it's um so on an individual level and you hear this all the time as you say in the the feast songs and the stories that are being told this concept of hey if you're uh, what what did i just watch if you're oh yeah no it's in the wheel of time the wheel of time oh. show. if you're whatever the, the first rule of being a man says lan mm -hmm. is whatever comes face it on your feet it's yeah. a very a very northern concept right and uh, i think i think i i like what you say about the dragon and his representation there of that sort of yeah fight. yeah no beautifully said uh i love the way you you quoted galadriel there uh and it is courage in the face of certain doom the long defeat uh, that the pagan uh, uh, Anglo-Saxons, Germanic culture most worshipped this this notion of, of courage, knowing you're going to lose. Uh, there are all kinds of examples of it in Old English poetry, in, in Beowulf, who, as an old man, goes to encounter the dragon, going out with a blaze of glory. Or in the Battle of Malden, for example, there are these wonderful mm -hmm. lines that I'm sure you're familiar with um, that go, uh, it, it, this is when a, a local English contingent is fighting against Vikings. They have no chance of victory and they're going down. But uh, one of them says after their, their Lord has been slain, he shall the herdra herta the kenra mod shall the mara the urmayan litlath, which means something like our, our thought or our purpose shall be the harder. Our hearts shall be the keener. Our courage shall be greater as our might lessens. And they're being cut down by the Vikings. Uh, so yeah, that is the uh, epitome of uh, Northern courage. Ah, oh, man, such good stuff. Um, let's talk translations. I'm gonna switch gears here again. We've got a few more minutes left to uh, talk about this, uh, about Beowulf. Let's talk translations. And if somebody has listened to this and they say, hey, I, I either want to try this for the first time or go back because uh, it's been a while. And, and you should. Beowulf is amazing. Uh, Seamus Haney has the uh, <laughs> the ultimate translation, you know, of, of the last uh, 100 years. I mean, Tolkien did a translation and it was regarded well, but not uh, universally so. Um, you know, fast forward two, three generations and Seamus Haney comes along and gosh, what, what was that late nineties, early two thousands that he uh, I can does check his I anyway, of the original day, but I'll keep, keep, keep talking. We'll there was a, I, when I was in college, I read uh, Howell Chickering, um, his Dual translation. translation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which was really a, an interesting way to do it. Um, Seamus Haney's translation is great. And now, as you say, there's a new one. Uh, there have been dozens over the years. Oh, but yeah. who do you like to read and why? And how do you translate the word what? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> the great okay. eternal debate of how do you translate the first word of Beowulf? All right, what? let's hear it. <laughs> you're like, I like this. You're, you're like a... a 
toy outside of a grocery store. I just have to put yeah. the quarter in and just watch you guys. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No. Um, gosh, translation first. Uh, so Tolkien did a translation. He never meant for it to be published. I think that's an important point that he did not consider it finished. Right. And he did a prose translation, which I think is lovely, but I don't think is necessarily accessible uh, to a lot of people. Mm. Uh, in other words, uh, he was fond of archaic constructions. And, what? No. Yeah, shocker. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing. I love his translation. I wouldn't necessarily use it to teach a beginner class reading Beowulf right. for the first time. Um, I, I have used over the past however many years, uh, the Heaney translation uh, has been my staple translation that I use. He was a poet uh, and a great poet, uh, Seamus Heaney. Uh, he has um, a tendency to use some very local Northern Irish words in, to flavor his translation, which I, I actually like that. Uh, I enjoy that um, because it gives it a sense of, I think there's some accessibility to his translation, but at the same time, a poetic quality to it, uh, where he is, it's not boring to read. I feel that it's, it's, a, it's a translation that works on an aesthetic level. Um, so I could give you a very literal translation, which would bore you to death because it's stilted. Um, Heaney's translation is poetic. I have just fallen in love with Tom Shippey's translation and this edition that is uh, edited by Leonard Nydorf, who's also, by the way, uh, an old uh, scholar of Old English, uh, has published numerous articles. Uh, so this, this is... Um, this is beautiful. Uh, I, I highly recommend it. Uh, I wouldn't does he do a verse translation? It's verse. It is a okay. verse translation. I think if you want to get at the meaning of the poem and the on a, on a word to word level, what perhaps the poet might have meant, I don't think he could do better than Tom Shippey. Mm. I, I feel like he's taken a very practical no nonsense approach to this. It is beautiful in places as well. Um, but what I feel is that as I'm reading his translation, if I want someone to know to get as close as possible without learning old English to maybe what the poet was trying to do, then I would recommend Tom Shippey's translation. And I, I could see it becoming a standard, uh, you know, translation taught in, in courses like the one I teach. Um, so I, I've enjoyed this translation very much. Uh, yeah. Good. Well, that's, I planned to get mine, but it had slipped between the cracks. And so this is a good call for me to make sure yes. I pick up my copy. Yeah. And uh, I forgot part two of your question. Um, oh, uh, how do you translate what? Oh, what? <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> so so let, let me back up and just tell people yeah. this is uh, one of those fun, uh, it's uh, Old English 101 literally the first day of class. Hey, here's a fun controversy. Nobody knows what this word means and everybody's got an opinion. Um, well, it <laughs> so. literally means what? Like our right. word, what? What are you doing today? But we don't use it the way the, that uh, this poet is clearly using it, um, which is often translated as low or like if you're going for a really archaic, you know, like low behold. or behold or something of that nature. Chippy does well. Uh, I believe that Seamus Heaney does so, you know. Right, um, so does Chickering, yeah. I, 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 I'm actually only being half um, uh, comedic when I suggest, and I wouldn't actually translate it with this, but 
I think in many ways, the nearest equivalent that people would understand in terms of the function of that word in that place. If you're familiar with uh, freestyle rap, a lot of times- oh, That's, your, your, rapper, that's every Thursday night for me, man. Uh, that's, all right, uh, there we go. Uh, the rapper <laughs> might start out with, yo. Yo. Right? Yo, yeah. which means listen up. I'm about to tell you something, right? That's pretty much the function of what there. It's like, yo, listen up. I'm gonna tell you something. I'm gonna tell you a story. So I think it's just like an attention getting kind of uh, sort of thing. Uh, that that's how we start the poem. And it, it is an awkward one to translate. Um, <laughs> so, cause we don't really have other than yo, I think a word that really uh, captures that the right connotation. Right. Not right? anymore. Yeah, I mean, Not we used anymore. to have low, right? Low yeah. would have been a great one. Low, yes, yeah. Uh, uh, but it's a little too, um, feels like, you know, you're, you're about to tell a tale of, you know, guys and, and tights or something like that it's a little too <laughs> maybe stiff i don't know a little stilted yeah. um anyway okay well that's that's fun i i had to throw that one in there just the 22 year old version of me living in my head would never have forgiven me if i hadn't uh, brought up the <laughs> controversy um it's I, I i probably have not done anything to settle it i'm sorry but. oh well that's this is my favorite kind of controversy that's uh yeah. that is extremely low stakes and cannot be settled. My favorite. <laughs> uh, it's perfect. Cool. Well, you know what? Let's let's wrap up our discussion of Beowulf, which is an offensive thing to say after 45 minutes of talking about it. I know, I know, but uh, we do have to stop this at some point. But final thoughts on Beowulf, uh, maybe speaking to those who, uh, again, haven't read it in a while or never got around to it, only saw the <clears throat> movie. Oh dear. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, what would you say thoughts. about Beowulf? Yeah, I mean, I think that it is one of the most beautiful attempts at wrestling with mortality and loss and grief. Uh, and I think it is made the more beautiful, like a good wine that ages, uh, because it is, it's interesting to think that it was written by a poet who was looking back on the past, but now we're reading it far in the future from that poet and looking back on the poet who is looking back on the past. So there's, there's layers uh, of uh, looking back at what has been lost. And I think there's just something beautiful about that, uh, the struggle to deal with mortality um, and the sympathy that the poet has for his subjects is also something that I really love. And I think it's, uh, even though he had that difference where he was uh, Christian, they were pagan, but he obviously regarded them with great love and with honor. Um, and I, I appreciate that approach uh, very much. Man, I love Beowulf and I want people to read it and enjoy it and have a good time with it. It's, um, it is a, as you say, there are side quests <laughs> or narratives, uh, if you will. So you'll get distracted sometimes, but uh, it's all giving you a flavor of what's going on in this world and how these people view uh, their place in civilization and what civilization means. Uh, but ultimately, if you do read through it, and it's not long, it won't take you a long time to read through it. Uh, and if you do, this goes back to my first question to you, you're going to get a good story. It's not just interesting as a historical artifact. It's interesting in its own right. Uh, Beowulf is a, a fascinating character. Hrothgar is a fascinating character. Uh, Grendel's mother, as you say, um, let alone the dragon. 
uh, anyway, so it's, yeah, it's just, it, it is a rip roaring adventure story that deserves to be enjoyed on its own merits. So, well, said. Uh, Very so Philip, before we go, we need to talk about your books. Ah, <laughs> you, because the thing is, you don't just read, you also write. And you've got uh, a trilogy out now. Book three just came out. Uh, it's the Idan trilogy. Idan? 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 Idan, yes. Idan I, I, anyway, is fine, really. <laughs> but the third one, Return to Idan, uh, just came out. But why don't you give us, uh, for those who haven't dipped their toes in, a little elevator pitch for the, the first book, the trilogy as a whole, uh, so they know what they're getting into. Sure. Yeah. My well, my my three word pitch uh, for the trilogy is Beowulf meets Buddhism. Uh, so <laughs> appropriate that we've just had this discussion. Okay. Uh, I've got the the mandala there behind me, uh, so uh, maybe that was a hint as well. But it is a a story where I do take much inspiration from old English poetry and that theme we were just talking about of life's fleetingness and dealing with mortality and our response to it. Uh, but I also do so with uh, some of the um, creatures like elves, for example. Uh, in modern fantasy, we have a conception of elves largely derived from, from Tolkien. Uh, I'm trying to go back to a much older, uh, I think, conception of elves as beautiful, but also monstrous, scary things. Uh, I also have a magic system in there that is based on empathy, but also Buddhist philosophy. Uh, with a sense of uh, connection between all of life, uh, seeing oneself as part of the world around one, uh, similar to a nice little analogy I read in a book by Thich Nhat Hanh, the heart of the Buddhist teaching, was that uh, we're all like little waves. Each of us is a little wave, and we're thinking, well, I'm a happy little wave, but really the whole time that wave is there, it's been part of the water, and it will return to the water uh, whence it came. Uh, and that's a kind of a, an idea about us being uh, not only connected with all of life, but us being fleeting, which is a similar sort of uh, uh, concern that we have uh, in Old English poetry. So there's the, that's sort of the philosophy underpinning it, but it's really also uh, an adventure. It's a, it, there's a, the uh, backdrop to the whole thing is a holy war. Uh, and so there's plenty of uh, combat and uh, bloodshed and, and monsters and dragons and, and all that sort of thing. Uh, the, the, the good old good stuff of fantasy. Uh, <laughs> many people have described it as uh, very classic in, in tone, but uh, also a modern take on fantasy. So, hmm. yeah. So it's the Edan trilogy, E-D-A-N. Don't worry, I'll link to it in the description. So... Uh, everybody should go check that out. You also, uh, you are a booktuber. Yes. You've got your own YouTube channel that people can check out. It is conveniently titled Philip Chase. <laughs> Very uh, hard to remember. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's tough to find, right? Just remember one L and you'll be good. Uh, yep. I'll link to that as well. Uh, but for any of our audience who gets frustrated that I don't put out enough actual YouTube content, well, there you go. Go check out Philip's channel. Um, and pick up let's see the the first book is the way of Eden, uh, and then the second one was the prophet of Eden, and then return to Eden. and Correct. people can uh, can and should absolutely check those out philip chase thank you so much for first of all thank you for coming on 
Second oh, of all, nice. thank you for choosing Beowulf and uh, getting this one on our uh, on our list of stuff that we've covered. It's an honor, Craig. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed this thoroughly. I could have gone another couple hours easily. I, it's <laughs> the, the curse of the one-hour podcast, for sure. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Philip, and I will see you next time. All right, bye-bye.